Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JN in the AM.org. And welcome to another Thursday talking politics. And there is a lot going on in the world. We'll try to cover it all, but, uh, you know, it's unlikely to get through it. But uh, first things first, we are proud to be sponsored by Beckerman Public Relations. Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. And I will say I've seen them in action uh, recently. Not that I like to get too much into the editorializing with regard to the sponsorships, but uh, they're quite good, good firm, and uh, happy to be sponsored by them. And a couple uh, of the headlines out there. There's just a lot going on because uh, St. Patrick's Day this week, there was a there is, as usual, foreign affairs issues cropping up, not just that missing plane, but uh, Ukraine, Russia, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we need to focus we need to focus uh, throughout the world on the things that are going on on every every single day. So. Let's just uh, let's just start off, though, however, with the hyperlocal. We're going to start off with the hyperlocal here, specifically with regard to something we've spoken about in the past, in the very past, which is the village of Bloomingburg, New York, in Sullivan County held an election this week. And we've kind of alluded to it. We've talked about it a little bit and discussed what was going on there, anti-Semitism. And I'm going to say straight anti-Semitism, folks, in 2014 – and what we had this week was unbelievable. I was up there, and I'll tell you that people tried everything they could to make sure that you not be able to vote. So we have a couple people who were up there, and uh, I want to use the first of them. He is uh, actually a host on this show, but uh, a great guy all around, defender of Jewish rights everywhere, Arya Lightstone. Welcome back to Spin Class. Hi. How are you, Michael? Nice to speak with you. So, Arya, you call, are you calling us from Bloomingburg right now? I am not in Bloomingburg at the moment, but I'll be on the road shortly. You're, okay, so what is going on? Give us the latest. What happened to the election? Let me just say they counted some ballots. They didn't count other ballots. And it seemed that most of the Jewish ballots were not counted. Yeah, I, 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 over 95% of the Jewish ballots were not counted. Um, it, you know, it was, the whole process has been incredibly complicated well, maybe it's not complicated. I think that you define it as, as downright anti-Semitism. But, uh, but they essentially had, um, Jewish people vote one way and, uh, everybody else vote in a different way. And, uh, affidavit ballots and challenge affidavit ballots and, and as I understand, I'm not an attorney and I'm certainly not an election expert right now. It seems as though the entire election has been taken out of the hands of both the Board of Elections and, and even the voters, and it sounds like it's being decided upon by a judge. Yeah, so it's interesting what they did here. What, ha- what happened was they basically said, and uh, my understanding is that they said that anybody whose vote was challenged had to vote via affidavit ballot, and typically affidavit ballots are used for people who aren't on the voter rolls, and now, but they said, well, if you're challenged, you got to vote the affidavit ballot, and your ballot isn't counted until a judge says it's okay. And so you're telling me, and my understanding is that it's one standard for some residents, another standard for other residents. Yeah, there certainly is a double standard going on. And and look, I think a reasonable person can make an argument that uh, that for all elections, there should be a degree of scrutiny that's applied to them. And I think that, that that's probably fair and maybe even appropriate. 
But when they've now taken a group of people who some are what I would call newer residents and some are much more long-term residents, there, there are many residents who have now uh, been in the village for some as, as short as two years and some as long as, as I think, 35 years who have voted regularly in past elections and have got looped in with the Jews and, uh, and now had to vote differently. And, and that just, it, it's weird. I mean, it's, it's, it's fundamentally weird in, in 2014 in New York State. It's amazing that we can talk about in 2014 this kind of thing happening. And uh, what, what is it that's going on? I mean, it's one thing to go ahead and protest and say, okay, we don't want development, we don't want overdevelopments. But to really target, to, to effectively target Hasidic Jews, I mean, is that what's going on here? I, I mean, that's that's my understanding. But, uh, you know, really give it give it to us from your perspective. Yeah, look, from, from, from my perspective, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated and a nuanced situation with lots of conflicting different both opportunities and challenges that exist in this tiny village of Bloomingburg, New York. Um, but you've here been able to see the power of a very few, but very loud and, and dare I say incredibly obnoxious, uh, prejudiced bigots, uh, who've been able to turn an entire election process on its head. Um, and as, uh, you know, there's been lots of people that have been reached out to who you would assume would carry this banner and, and protest against and, and care tremendously against. It's, there's been nobody who's come out publicly, not, not the press and not our political leaders or anybody else who's come to say this, this is not right. Right. Okay. So we have uh, also on the line with us, uh, Morris Friedman. A Hasidic political activist uh, who lives in Borough Park, who was up in Berg on Tuesday. Uh, he was, uh, I, I guess, rightly outraged by what was going on and wanted to help people exercise their right to vote. Moshe, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Hi, Michael. How are you today? So, what, what you were there on the you were there on Tuesday? Tell me what you saw. Well, I've seen, I've never witnessed in my life such a vote that happened over there. The, most of the Orthodox Jewish votes, if not all of them, were challenged. Now, the other side, if they challenge, there's nothing that uh, the Board of Elections could come out and do about that. There's a right for every person to challenge every vote. But the Board of Elections is supposed to be a neutral party simply managing a vote. And what happened over there was, that every person that came in, and if he was an Orthodox Jew, they told him right away, you have to vote via affidavit because you're being challenged. They didn't Wait, that, hold on a second, and I just want to I just want to confirm that. So without even checking their ID, without even talking and getting their name, they told them right away that they have to vote by affidavit ballot just because they had a, a beard and payas and a hat? That is correct. That is correct. Wow. Okay, Arye, very quick question for you. What what is the what happens now? I mean, where where does this go? Well, along with with showing up to the voting uh, poll place and 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 based upon how you look or dress, uh, voting now differently. Um, they're all all Orthodox Hasidic voters are going to be called in front of a judge on March 31st 
and he is going to, I guess, with the power of investing in by himself, uh, will determine if each and every one of them uh, are in his mind fit to have their votes counted. I, 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 this is, again, I'm not an election expert, I'm not an attorney, I'm, I'm none of those things, but, but it's, it, to me, doesn't sound a lot like a democracy. Yes, absolutely. Well, Ari Lightstone, thanks for framing the issue for us. I know you have to run, uh, but thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Thank yeah, you I'm very sorry. much. Have a wonderful day. Okay, Maisha Friedman, back to you for a second. Maisha, you still there with us? Maisha? Ah. Okay, so uh, I think we have Jacob Corbelow on the line, who was also in Bloomingburg on Tuesday. Jacob, good morning, good afternoon, welcome to Spin Class. It's always a pleasure to be home, Michael. So, Jacob, every week I feel like we have something going on that, uh, you know, to talk about. Last week it was de Blasio with his, uh, you know, with his fake signatures. And uh, this week you're talking about something possibly even more outrageous in politics, right? The political establishment going out there and conspiring against the Jews. I mean, I've covered elections before, as you know, and I mean, this was an election day, uh, unprecedented scene. I mean, to to see uh, um, the media, to see uh, um, local residents just wait out and look out for every Hasidic Jew coming in to the parking lot, uh, just willing to exercise their right to vote. If they're residents or not, that is to determine by court if they are legal to vote, if they're 30-day residents, if they're um, if it's only a summer house, but to 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 violate their privacy, to intimidate voters while they are walking in to exercise their right to vote, this is I've never seen this before. And uh, I, I the intimidation was uh, videos and. And pictures, right? I think they got profile pictures of every single voter. Um, and uh, there was some name-calling and heckling. And I think you, you mixed it up a little bit with some of the people there I saw from the video. Well, I, I was there since 12 o'clock. Uh, uh, you know, on the, it was a nice spring day. And uh, I was just monitoring uh, and observing, um, you know, how... Um, you know, the local residents are treating uh, uh, the voters coming into the polling booth. And, you know, it, there, there is something about, uh, um, you know, public information and freedom of press. You know, take a picture of a, of a voter walking in. I understand you want to cover the election. But to go into uh, the people's face and click five or ten pictures at a time and when that person comes out, another 10 pictures. And when that person talks with another guy, another 10 cameras pop up and videos are recording their conversation, you know. So I was like, cool, but, you know, when <laughs> uh, at 7 o'clock, you know, after standing on the seats um, seven hours and observing uh, what's being done, I decided I just want to, as a reporter, I just want to take a picture people taking a picture of people talking outside. And when I came close to them, I guess the tensions were running high, and they accused me of taking picture of the kids while they were doing the same. But the funny thing is that uh, the 
photographer that took all the pictures accusing these Hasidic voters uh, of so-called, quote-unquote, illegal voting, he isn't even a resident of that village. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So I think we have Moshe Friedman back. Moshe, you were in the polls inside, uh, I think, as a poll watcher, and many of the residents were, you know, were they feeling intimidated, some of the Hasidic residents? What about the, the regular residents? What, what was going on inside the polling place? Inside the polling place, what happened was that there was a lot of fraud going on from the other side. What they did was there's a village of Blumenburg, and I would assume there's a town of Blumenburg, or on the zip code there's Blumenburg, New York, that is outside of the village. Yeah, that's that's not atypical of places outside of uh, New York City. You can have places that are within a village and outside a village, even though they share the same mailing address or mailing uh, post office. And what happened was the other side of the mayors of the Girardi campaign sent out literature to everybody to come out and vote without looking up if they're in the village or not. And a lot of people came in that were outside of the village, and while the Board of Election had to turn them away, telling them that they're not entitled to vote, they don't live in the village, some people insisted that we have to vote, and they were also given affidavit ballots. They came over there knowing that they have no right to vote about this. Only the citizens of Blumenberg should vote who their mayor should be, and they still try to vote just to make sure that Orthodox Jews do not have their right to live in that village. So I hear something pretty amazing here, that the accusations of fraud and election rigging, and as we've talked about, or I'm sorry, we've heard about, the FBI has involved in this this village, uh, in this situation here, and it's all been kind of, directed at the Jewish community, the allegations of fraud. Yet, it seems that both sides of this fight, or both sides of this, were engaged in, uh, or potentially engaged in some election shenanigans. I guess I'll use that as a word. Um, you know, Jacob, did you see, as a, as a, as a journalist, as an independent journalist, what, what would you say that you saw on each side? Did you see people engaging in inappropriate election activity? Um, I, what I observed is uh, on election day, I'm talking about election day because I was not involved, uh, you know, in covering the entire election season. But on election day, you know, there are two things to uh, uh, on election day. There are some, uh, um, if, if, if you're involved, in, 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 you know, in fraud, usually what you do is you bring a bus, you drop down uh, 20, 40 people, you just tell them, vote for this and this guy and just get the hell out of there. But that is not what happened on either side. Uh, on either side, you saw, uh, you know, car by car, people coming in, asking, you know, regular questions, what to vote, how to vote. It didn't look like an organized crime on, on either side. However, when you saw an Hasidic Jew walking in, you know, willing to exercise his right to vote, you saw a guy, you know, they claim innocent because 
they affirmed by affidavit that they lived there. On the other hand, what you saw in the eyes of the other side was just, you know, you saw the fire in their eyes. They were just burning. They couldn't take the fact that people who claim to live here in this village are actually coming out to vote. So I, I, I didn't observe any inappropriate activity on the ground, but you could really sense uh, uh, what crime is when, when, when it's organized. And this is not what happened on election day. Yeah, it certainly seems from my perspective and what I've seen that there's a lot as far as this uh, vast conspiracy is a lot to do about nothing here. Uh, you know, people should really be entitled to vote where they choose to vote, uh, whether or not we have to tighten election laws. You know, and I editorialize a bit that that's a that's a larger discussion whether people need to. But, you know, the trend in the United States. In especially lately with help America, with help people vote or even early voting, same day voting has been to allow people to register and to vote where they choose to vote. And, you know, it's understandable that some people there's always going to be conflict. That's what unfortunately elections are about. They're about a conflict. If they're contested, that's going to happen. But people need to be able to choose their their place where they want to vote. It's not like I, I don't think that people are voting in multiple places in the same election. So it certainly seems to that. But Moshe, just to get back for a second with regard to within the polling place, uh, I, I know that you uh, were, were translating uh, for, for some of the Yiddish speakers who didn't just speak English that well. How did they feel about getting through this gauntlet of pictures and, uh, and, and name calling that was outside of the polling place? And then when they went inside, were they still – were they still harassed or they were they were confident, they were happy, um, they were excited to, to vote in a new place? What was the mood amongst the Hasidic voters after their votes were challenged and they were told immediately they had to vote on special ballots? They were shocked that a thing like this could happen in the United States in 2014, that they will be discriminated again and they against themselves and they will not be able to vote between the other population. But at the end of the day, they were happy to exercise their vote. They came up over there, young couples with children, and they moved in, trying to build a new neighborhood. And at the end of the day, even if they couldn't vote like the other neighbors, they were still allowed to vote via affidavit. And if the affidavit will be counted, then they'll feel satisfied that they were part of the process of who should govern the village that they moved into. So in the end... In the end, they were happy, they were, they were confident, they were feeling, no, they or were they kind of felt, uh, wow, the deck the is really stacked against us. We, we spent all this time going, going out to vote. People don't, you know, don't always go to vote, and they're feeling, oh, we might have wasted our time. I mean, which, you know, which was, what was the sense? I will give you an example for your listeners to understand. There was a part on the envelope, which was called Part D. When you fill out an affidavit, there's a lot of information you have to fill out. And part B of that affidavit was for a person living in Sullivan County if he moved from one village to another. So while these residents that moved in from all over the state did not, most of them did not move from Sullivan from one village to another. So they were told you could skip part B that does not pertain 
to your information, some people were told by the Board of Elections that you have to fill it out. Some ballots, even if they did not fill out, the inspector would take a pen and fill out for them. And some of them felt that they were doing that on purpose. So you should be able to challenge those votes afterwards in court, even though the voter did everything that was right. The, the Board of Elections was helping intimidate them not to vote properly so they should be able to be challenged. Uh, truly amazing. And I guess the part of that double standard. Now, Jacob, during the day, and this is one thing I noticed that I found particularly shocking, uh, you retweeted a tweet from a local resident, possibly, uh, that was quickly taken down. But I think it kind of summed up the mood of some of the people who were standing outside the polling place and hurling insults and accusations. And I'll just read it because I think you captured it well. Uh, Megan04 said on Twitter, seeing Hasidics walking around Bloomingburg makes my blood boil. Uh, the, the funny thing is usually when you, when you, uh, you know, you write an offensive tweet and you see people reacting to it, you just delete the tweet. However, this Megan04 basically deleted the entire account. So I, I have no, um, way how to, how to trace that. But, you know, being on ground as a journalist, I was treated the same as the Hasidic voters uh, allegedly uh, being involved in, 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 in illegal voting. You know, I was there just to observe what's happening. I went over to them. I spoke civilly to all of them. You know, there were several reporters there. There were several activists. And I spoke openly and freely to everybody and told them I'm here. I'm not biased by any side, of course. And, you know, the way they treated me because I was an orthodox, Jews, you know, they were like, why are you covering this? Do you know that um, uh, the Hasidics are trying to steal this village, blah, blah, blah? And I was, like, looking on the ground and seeing, like, um, holes in the entrance of the parking lot with, you know, puddles. And I was like, this is, an, a, this is a village town hall. How come that the village does not take care of its infrastructure? So they said, we are a poor village. So I said, so... You should be happy that other people are coming in and, and, you know, trying to boost the economy. They were like, no, 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 the Hasidics are here to steal our village. And as the day progressed, they were getting more and more tense, and they were diverting all their hate towards me. And I, I, I can take heed. I don't mind, you know, when somebody expresses hatred towards me, but you could sense that in the air, that this was not just a resident feeling their villages being uh, quote-unquote stolen from them. You could sense that they had an issue with Jews coming, exercising their right to vote, or Jews choosing a particular neighborhood to reside in. And that is what was troubling. And I couldn't find, I, I, I even tried talking to the lawyer of the other side, to the mayor, to, to I mean, to the mayoral candidate, to Girardi. They all ignored me. They all neglected me because I was seen as one of the bunch of the others. And that is what's problematic when there's an earth. And we are here in the United States, and when you cover an election and you see one side is just doing everything they are told by the book, 
you know, there's uh, rules, there are laws, and they're told to vote. And on the other hand, you always have protesters. But these were not protesters. Um, yeah, and, they, and it's particularly amazing that a lot of times in these situations, some of the feelings and some of the particularly obscene statements aren't given the light of day because they're kept behind closed doors and people might be prejudiced, they might be bigoted, but they don't necessarily throw it out there for the whole world to see. But it seems that here that the lo- some of the, many of the local residents, maybe some of them actually aren't residents, my understanding is that many of the most rabid anti-Hasidic uh, people in Bloomingburg, in fact, do not live in Bloomingburg. They live elsewhere. And, but yet these people are not afraid, like Megan04, even though she hides behind a Twitter address, she wasn't afraid to kind of throw it out there saying basically, I hate Hasidic people or Hasidic Jews. And that's, that, that particularly, that's amazing in 2014 that people have no compunction about throwing their prejudice out there. Michael, what I would say is most of the people if you really look at the election results, I would say more than 50% of the Bloomingburg people like the Jews, and they don't mind them coming living in. And you have that in a proof. There was so much hatred going on over there, and 25% of the electoral votes, more than 25% of the electoral votes, stood up and said, no, we are going with the old mayor, and we don't care about this hate, and we will have him reelected. So I am sure that there's a lot of people that simply could not stand the pressure and they were afraid a day after the election. This is not like in Brooklyn or any other place in New York State that there are thousands of voters and you don't know which way they voted. This is a small little village of 108 people. So they were afraid. I'm sure a lot of them voted just because. They didn't know how to face the neighbor the next day if they will not vote against the current mayor for the simple reason that he was helping the village grow economically by bringing in fresh blood into his village. Yeah, truly amazing. And I'm so excited or excised about this issue that I haven't done a station ID. And we're this is spin class. We're talking to Jacob Kornblue and Moshe Friedman about the situation in Bloomingburg, New York, the recent election on Tuesday. We're sponsored by BeckermanPublicRelations.com, BeckermanPR.com. And uh, gentlemen, you know, what uh, you've both been involved and Jacob, you as a journalist, Moshe, you as a political activist, been involved in a lot of election situations and there are people on both sides and, you know, you've been involved in things that are really contested and and the like. But what's the message for the larger community as far as this? People aren't paying attention. I don't know if they're paying enough attention to what's going on here. And I don't think most people in Brooklyn or in Lakewood or in Teaneck or, you know, the large Orthodox communities out there in Muncie are really aware of the extent of the prejudice and the discrimination. I think if they were, you probably both agree that they would be they they'd be jumping into their cars and running up there to protest. I mean, I I would give you an example. Uh, a few months ago, the the uh, governor stood up and uh, uh, condemned the Pine Bush uh, School for discriminating against Jews, and it became an issue of the day. Every politician, statewide or even in the city, condemned that, and. Pine Bush became 
an example of fighting anti-Semitism. It could happen, I mean, and I'm not using that term because I'm very, very careful using the word anti-Semitism, unlike others. But, you know, that, that it has but what to be brought feel- to attention. Enough people realize what's going on about how how people are being persecuted here, or or I guess yeah. maybe persecuted isn't the wrong word. They're certainly being discriminated against. Certainly, yeah. if they if you walk into a polling site and the and the worker says, "Here's a special ballot just for you because you're Hasidic," I mean, there's a problem with that. This is America. You're I mean, an American citizen. You should be treated the same as anybody else. Absolutely, and, and you know you know something we we had it in the city council a racial profiling bill. And this was the core of uh, the election of Mayor de Blasio against racial profiling. Here in the middle of the day, in, out in the sun, you had racial profiling. Every Hasidic voter was profiled and, 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 and discriminated for exercising their will to vote. I think, and this is why I came down to observe, was People have to be aware of their present living in different neighborhoods across the state, and you have to bring this to attention. And once the, uh, uh, um, it is brought out to attention, and it's not a one-sided story in the media, you see both sides of the story, and you bring that to attention, I think people will start being outraged, people will start uh, commenting, and from there, it goes on to the executive branch, to the legislator, to put out specific rules that protect the right of certain people, certain segments, certain factions, and certain in certain neighborhoods, the right to vote and the right to exercise their way of life. Michael, if I may add... And it's very important for the community at all, even people that don't care about Blumenberg should know whether you live in Muncie, you live in Lakewood, you live in Borough Park, Williamsburg, Queens. What happens in Blumenberg is going to happen all over in any other village. That's not a question if, if the people of Blumenberg have a right to vote. This is a simple question. What the people in Blumenberg, the other side, were trying to do is they say, you know what, you cannot come in and live over here legally even though you rent an apartment and even though you move in, you should not be entitled to vote because you are Jewish. And if we're going to let this happen and stay in Bloomingburg, it's going to happen someplace else. We cannot keep on living in Borough Park. We can't keep living in Muncie or in Monroe. There is a need as the time goes to move to other places, and yes, you have to keep all the laws of the local villages, whatever has to be done, but once you keep the laws, you cannot go out and say, well, the laws apply differently to a Hasidic Jew than the laws apply to everybody else. And this is something that everybody in the community has to stand up and say no. These were law-abiding citizens. You could go down over there. They have their apartment, living over there, their boys over there, studying over there, learning over there. They registered over there, and they should have their right to vote as every other citizen of that village. 
You know, it's interesting, Moshe, and I think you make a great point that we often see that the that the Hasidic community is very aggressive. It's perceived when, with regard to certain issues, protesting at, uh, on certain issues, but. In the end, a lot of the community is very passive sometimes when it comes to these types of everyday discriminatory issues. We kind of accept it as being orthodox and, and that, you know, okay, well, you know, we're, we're a little bit different. So sometimes we don't always get uh, the same and equal treatment. But, you know, we've seen that in places that are have nothing to do with the Hasidic community, West Hampton, the West Hampton Beach we talked about on this show where they don't want to allow an Arab. We've seen that in other places about the Arab because they don't want to have too many Orthodox Jews moving in. And we've seen that in, in Muncie where people say that Hasidic Jews shouldn't be allowed on the school board or where I live in Lawrence that Orthodox Jews shouldn't be allowed on the school board. You know, we see that kind of everyday kind of passive – I would – you know, it's not always anti-Semitism in a classic way because a lot of times it pits Jew versus Jew, but it's almost okay to say, well, Orthodox Jews are different, so therefore we don't have to treat them the same. And I think what you're making a great point in saying that's just wrong. That's just that, and that if you're allowed to to continue and allowed to percolate, that just creates uh, that just creates greater and greater discrimination. And it's important for people to know because when. When people think that it's not about me, I will never move over there. Yes, you will never move over there, but tomorrow morning you will want to move to Muncie. What people don't realize, there's some villages around Muncie, Irmond, that they have the same issues. There's some villages around Kiryas Joel that are doing these same issues to the Orthodox Jews moving in. This is not only Bloomingburg at exit 116, so I don't care, I don't live over there. These issues happen all over the state. And if you're not going to stick up for your brother that was taking away his vote, you don't know which day they will turn around into your area and say, we will take away your vote. I guess uh, I guess you're right. It's that slippery slope that we come to that, uh, you know, you can't got to speak up when the other person is discriminated. But I'll tell you what's particularly crazy here is that the, some of the people who are mostly who are the hottest about this issue and posting things on Facebook and Twitter and elsewhere with regard to Hasidic Jews moving into Bloomingburg in that area is our Jewish people, or at least Jewish last names. I don't know exactly what, you know, where they, where they might daven, but uh, they have the Jewish last names. And sometimes they kind of feel that that protects them from being labeled anti-Semites. And uh, I hopefully, you know, Jacob, uh, Getting the person I think that you mixed it up with the other day uh, was a woman named Leslie Weinstein, and she, uh, you know, she quite got quite animated in talking to you, Jacob. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm used to hostile people, but you know, uh, um, you know, she there was no reason for that outrage. There was no reason for that hatred because nobody confronted them. They were standing there the entire day by themselves. Nobody took away the signs. Nobody came and spat at them. Nobody even came and cursed them out. There was one incident, but the sheriffs were, 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 um, were involved right away. And I, I just, just did my job. I just took pictures of them discriminating uh, other people. And, Michael, you are coming out uh, uh, several times during the day 
whenever you are standing with another guy, there were pictures, there were videos recording your conversation. I mean, that is basic privacy of a person. I can walk in the street and talk with whoever I want and not have 10 cameras unless I'm a public official. And, you know, so, I mean, you spoke about these with, uh, with, with Jewish surnames. I mean, uh, there are a lot of, uh, there, there are two aspects to Judaism. You're, you're either you're born a Jew or you're a practicing Jew. And they just claim, they just claim they're Jewish so they can protect their hate towards uh, Orthodox Jews. And it's, 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 it, there's, there, there should be no boundaries for anti-Semitism or for, for hatred towards any group. If you hate other people, it's simple hate, and you should express that hate in a manner that everybody knows that this is hate, this is not about protesting, this is not about sticking up for the rights of the village, this is simple hate, and I was happy to be there to expose that. Yeah, it's truly unbelievable about what's been going on, gentlemen. I really want to thank you for joining us. Jacob Cornblue of JP Updates, Yeshiva World, blogger, journalist extraordinaire who was on the ground and really covering what was going on in Bloomingburg. And thanks for shedding light on, I think, what people don't know enough about, that in 2014, Jews uh, can, can, you know, and are sometimes treated differently than other people. And it's uh, it's quite unnerving, it's quite disturbing, and it's the kind of thing we should talk about. And that's why we've devoted a, a large segment on this show about it, because uh, I certainly believe that everybody has to be aware when Jews, when there are official, particularly official government discrimination against the Jewish community. So, Jacob, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure, Michael. And Moshe Friedman, a political activist, is out there uh, in all the good fights that be going on politically in the Jewish community. So thanks really for uh, jumping in and giving us the inside, the really inside account of what was going on uh, in this even village election. Most village elections don't get as much attention as this one, Moshe. Thank you, Michael, and have a wonderful day. Thank you. This is Spin Class. We're sponsored by Beckerman, Beckerman Public Relations, Beckerman PR. Dot com And uh, we're going to stay in New York State for this entire show. I know sometimes we, we go far afield, but uh, it is budget time. It's budget season in Albany. That's usually where the Purim Pesach time usually coincides with the big money talks in Albany. And that is our state capital. And uh, many people might not know. And if they don't, you sh- uh, if you don't, you should know, particularly if you're a New York resident, that there's a lot at stake, particularly for those who send their children to yeshivas, day schools and the like here in New York State. There is an education investment tax credit on the table, which would be a dollar for dollar tax credit. And here to talk about it and talk about what you can do to make it happen is Jeff Lebb from the Orthodox Union. Jeff, welcome back to Spin Class. Hi, Michael. Pleasure to be on. How are you doing? Okay, so you you calling from upstate or downstate? I know it's crunch time. I'm actually uh, in the assembly chambers right now as we speak in Albany. Oh, fantastic. Well, it's it's quite ornate the assembly, and uh, it's it's really a beautiful chamber. And I would have to say, hopefully, the vote uh, or whether you could pass this education investment tax credit is probably uh, 
dependent on what goes on in that chamber specifically, given the fact the Senate's supporting. It seems that the governor is going to be supporting, but uh, you never know until the end. But I think he's on board, and now it's really left for the assembly to support. So why don't you give the audience the lay of the land right now? What is this tax credit, and what does it mean, and what are its chances? All right, well, as you know, as someone who's worked in government before, you're, you're 100% right. And things happen the last minute. We're in the final uh, stretch of the budget negotiations. But the tax credit is, uh, is simply um, it's, it's, a way for, it's a way for people to make contributions to scholarship organizations that service yeshivas and other non-public schools. And they get a tax credit by doing so. Uh, the, if the contributor contributes uh, money to a scholarship organization, a qualifying scholarship organization, they'll get a 100% tax credit for up to 75% of their New York State uh, tax liability. So to make it, uh, to simplify this, if I give a $1,000 contribution, if I owe $1,000 in taxes, I can give a $750 contribution to a scholarship organization and receive a $750 credit to my taxes, and I'll only owe $250. That money will go to a scholarship organization. That scholarship organization will service uh, non-public schools and uh, will essentially give that money to scholarship recipients or families who, uh, who are in need of scholarships who go to those, uh, those schools. So this is not a situation that you can actually take a credit for the tuition that you pay to each yeshiva. It's a little bit indirect, right? You can... Tell, tell, just explain how it might work. It's more like a charitable tax credit versus a deduction, but you can give that towards yeshivas. So it pumps more money to the yeshivas, but it's not a direct tax credit for tuition. Exactly, and that's why it's constitutionally permissible. And they've enacted this credit in 14 other states uh, because it's not it's not something that you're actually getting a credit or deduction for sending your child to yeshiva. Uh, rather, you're giving to a scholarship organization. That scholarship organization is helping out a family who qualifies for the, for the scholarship, and you're receiving a credit, uh, which is money off on your actual taxes. So it really, it, it, it's, a, it's not a deduction, it's a credit. It's real money that you're saving on your taxes or making a contribution, while at the same time, a family in need of a scholarship receives a scholarship. So the only real, I mean, not the only issue, but a major issue of, of, on this bill is the income eligibility limit. How much does a family need to make or what, what number they have to make under to receive that tax credit? And that's a big issue of contention. Right now, the Senate has that at $500,000. So a family of four uh, that has an income of $500,000 or below can receive, the, can receive the scholarship from the organization. And the Assembly has that right now at $250,000. So if you make $250,000 or below, in theory, in the bill, it passes then the family would be able to receive the, the um, scholarship from the organization as well. That's- so I like the fact that you're talking about it being real money because this is real, real money. Uh, this is money that you're paying. It's really going to go right back into your pocket. But I also noticed that you said 14 states have this type of tax credit already. And New York has the largest number of yeshiva students in the entire country. Why is New York behind the curve here? You would have thought, given the size of the Orthodox community, given the size of the Catholic community, given the size, uh, the sheer numbers, that this is the kind of thing that would have been kind of a no-brainer for politicians in Albany who want to go ahead and help their constituents. Why is this, why is New York taking so long to come aboard on this? If they come aboard, in fact. Well, as you know, when you were the right-hand man to, uh, 
the governor, George Sasaki, you see all these different groups and all these, uh, you know, different advocacy groups and unions uh, who go on either side of the issue. New York, we have a very, very powerful uh, set of unions and the teachers' unions, the uh, NYSIT and the UFT, and uh, they are very much pro-public school and pro-teachers, and they are uh, vociferously campaigning against this bill specifically. They're going to every member of the Assembly in the Senate, and they're asking them to, uh, you know, to vote the bill down, to not support the bill, because their position is any money that's spent on education must go to public schools and cannot go to any non-public schools or, or faith-based schools. And we're talking with Jeff Lepp from the Orthodox Union, who is at crunch time in Albany. The state budget gets done by April 1st. So Jeff is in the crunch days of his of his work up in Albany on our behalf and pushing through, hoping to push through this education investment tax credit. And uh, Jeff, what can the people sitting at home, sitting in their in their living rooms right now, listening to this show, what is it that they can do to make this happen? Well, honestly, the uh, this may sound a little bit cliche, but we're working with the we're working with the Catholic Conference and uh, you know other Jewish organizations. And the one thing that people can do really is is contact their legislator, uh, their assembly member specifically right now, because in the Senate it seems like it would pass. Uh, so they would they should contact their, their assembly member and tell them that they support the credit. I was speaking to different uh, different legislators who say that when the when the Catholic Conference sends out an email or an action alert to contact their elected officials, the elected officials are getting new representatives are getting four or five hundred emails, uh, you know, per district from their other uh, constituents. We don't really have that same passion in the Jewish community to really reach out to our elected officials and let them know what's on our minds and what matters to us. And because of that, sometimes they think that, you know, this isn't really a big deal. My community doesn't really care that much if this passes or not. But as you said before, if this bill passes, this would be an absolute game changer and uh, really impact, uh, you know, the tuition affordability issue that uh, we all are dealing with uh, for, for our yeshiva and our yeshivas and our Jewish day schools. So, Jeff, I'm not holding to anything, not predicted. I know you don't want to speculate. On a scale of 1 to 10, what kind of chances would you give this education investment tax credit? Uh, well, we had Colonel Dolan come down, uh, and he spoke with the governor and the uh, and the speaker and the majority leaders, and we were down here yesterday and the day before with groups from Brooklyn, Long Island, uh, and across the across the state, Manhattan, the Bronx, Westchester. We all tried to make the point that this really matters to us. Scale of one to ten, or one being not likely at all, and ten being a definite uh, pass. I would probably dunk. give it right now a probably four and a half to five and a half chance of uh, of passing. So you really got it. Your work cut out for you. Uh, definitely. I mean, fortunately, you know, the Assembly Speaker has paid out some other great uh, bills and initiatives that really benefit the Yeshiva community as well. So, uh, you know, we hope to end the budget with something that really benefits the, uh, the Jewish day schools. Okay, fantastic work. Jeff Lab, the Director of Political Affairs for New York State for the Orthodox Union and Teach NYS. Jeff, thanks for giving us an update from the Assembly Chamber from the front lines on the Education Investment Tax Credit, and I would encourage everybody to make their voices heard on this very important issue. Thank you for your time. I got a good job. You too, Jeff. And this is Spin Class. And uh, while we're talking about Albany, we have one of our Frequent political consultants on the line talking about crunch time. We're going to talk about a little bit about the budget and Governor Andrew Cuomo and his uh, particular political 
uh, instincts these days. Uh, Dave Catalfamo, former communications director for Governor Pataki, now at Park Strategies and a, a pundit and consultant, veteran of many campaigns. Dave, welcome back to Spin Class. Michael, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. So, Dave, I know that this is, as we, just our last guest told us, this is crunch time in Albany. A lot gets done at the end of March. And uh, it seems that one thing for sure, at least from where I'm sitting, is that Governor Cuomo is looking really good and confident these days. Well, I think, you know, uh, he's been handed a sort of a plate full of issues, courtesy of uh, our new mayor in New York, Bill de Blasio, who's really kind of teed him up to grab the center ground on a lot of issues uh, on everything from pre-K to charter schools. Uh, and even as your last uh, guest was talking about on this uh, tax credit piece, um, I think that, you know, his juxtaposition vis-a-vis um, the new mayor of New York has actually allowed him to kind of grab the steering wheel on a bunch of issues that he really hadn't been engaged on before. Yeah, it's interesting when you think about it, because I think a lot of people – had this perception it was written about that Cuomo would find de Blasio to be a problem, that de Blasio would drag him to the left and he'd show Democrats that Cuomo isn't kind of a faux Democrat. He's not really a Democrat. And that might turn some of the Democrats against him. But instead, and I have to say, as a Republican, he's quite masterfully. He has really outfoxed the de Blasio wing of the party on pre-K and on a whole host of issues. It's, it's quite impressive politically. It, it is from a you know political jujitsu point of view, but I think when you look underneath the numbers, and we saw in some of the polling recently, you know, Mayor De Blasio is keeping his base among the very liberal and ethnic communities in New York City. And so, in the, from the long term, from electoral point of view, I think you have to wonder whether or not um, you know some of these positions and juxtaposition vis-a-vis the mayor might actually hurt the governor as he goes into a general election with the activist base of his party. And as you know, Michael, these are the folks who come out and vote. These are the people who actually provide energy and organization to elections. So the question really is whether or not the offset sort of gains with independents and moderate Republicans with losses to the more activist left. Yeah, certainly everybody has to worry about their base. I mean, that's the big word these days is, you know, do you have a primary? Because many districts are so rigged uh, around the country, mm-hmm. but, but not not so much in New York uh, because of uh, what happened with redistricting. But uh, everybody worries about their flank, either the right flank or the left flank. And that actually leads me into a question with regard to the Republicans, sure. because the Republicans now, after the Donald Trump flirtation, uh, is have a – one gubernatorial candidate, at least, uh, Rob Astorino, the Westchester County executive, who on paper is a very attractive uh, candidate, given his ability to win in a quite democratic county, uh, actually Governor Cuomo's home county of Westchester. And mm-hmm. yet, at the same time, he has to worry about his right flank, meaning Carl Palladino. What's going on with that? Are the Republicans going to once again you know, do their uh, circular firing squad? No, actually, I think that, you know, now with the Trump fiasco behind us, and, and by the way, you know, a lot of people who are, are, are a bit younger than me don't remember this, but the last time Donald Trump actually flirted with this, you know, the Republican Party got Pierre and Gray. So we ended up a lot better off this time, you know, with a quicker resolution. And, and in Rob, we have a candidate who, uh, as you said, Michael, can uh, win and, and bring crossover votes. I, I think that the 
you know, Carl's uh, message is, you know, uh, he wants to continue to be a voice in the party and a voice on issues. And I think at the end of the day, he will coalesce around uh, the Astorino campaign and, and, and be a big part of helping us be successful in November. So just let's just discuss the politics of the election year to a certain degree. Is Rob Astorino running to win? Is he, is he people, is his camp confident that he can surmount the tremendous financial advantage that Governor Cuomo has? And I guess you would say also the political foil of being able to kind of run against, uh, Bill de Blasio and New York City. Um, you know, to kind of show he'll he'll do well in New York City, but, you know, he'll kind of do well in the suburbs because he's got that foil of de Blasio and he took mm-hmm. him on. Um, you know, doesn't that suck up some of the oxygen that might be available to Rob Astorino? Well, I think, A, there's a long way to go. But, you know, B, I think Rob would be the first one to say that it's a, you know, it's a difficult race and that, you know, the governor's got a lot of advantages, in, in particular $30 million worth of uh, campaign cash on hand uh, in order to be, you know, very effective uh, on his communications. But, you know, ultimately it comes down to issues, and there's a whole host of issues that are animating the electorate where Rob is on uh, Rob is on the side that uh, that people care about, whether it's Common Core or in many places upstate the SAFE Act or on hydrofracking. There are these issues where he can drive uh, some intensity in, in the vote, um, Upstate and then downstate, I think it's really sort of a question of, you know, how is it that you sort of pose the question? And I think that they've done a good job of doing this. You know, at the end of the day, do you think that you're doing, you know, do you think that New York is winning or losing? And I think that that's a very good and simple sort of formulation that people can understand. And while, you know, I think the real, the, the harder part about Rob's run is that, you know, uh, Governor Cuomo has not been a, you know, far left liberal on, economic issues. You know, uh, he, he's actually controlled spending, uh, kept it to 2% for the first three years, delivered on-time budgets. He followed a very low bar of Spitzer and Patterson so far as government chaos. So, you know, he's ha- he has some accomplishments that are real um, and that are more moderate than they are liberal. And I think that that, that very much is more the challenge than even the resources and whatnot, is that uh, Cuomo has played for the middle uh, of the party, uh, middle the middle of New York, and in doing so, it makes it difficult to get to that. Um, but I, again, you know, Rob is a very sort of accessible kind of candidate, different than a can- any kind of candidate we've seen in a while. He has you know some conservative stances, and yet he talks about them in very sort of uh, open and accessible kind of way. He doesn't come across as angry. He has success reaching to Hispanic and, and, and minority voters. So I think, you know, um, it's really, I mean, you know, Republicans for years now have been waiting to have a candidate like Rob who we could uh, test against, you know, Democratic establishment. And I think, I think he will do very well. I think it's very hard to win, though. Well, certainly, as you alluded to, Cuomo going towards the center, sucking up the center, he's also been – pushing to suck up a lot of Republicans. He has been doing some Republicans for Cuomo fundraisers, and he recently hired an old colleague, uh, Susan Del Percio, right. which the Look, fact I that she that, used to be partners with Bill O'Reilly is Rob Astorino's consultant. So mm-hmm. he went ahead and scooped up some Republican talent and is making an attack towards courting Republicans. What do you make of that? 
Uh, and look, I think it's a, it's a, a tried and true sort of playbook. Uh, when you're incumbent and you, you know, you're looking to have a, uh, a, a big reelection. I think that it's smart that you reach across the uh, party lines to try to attract uh, both campaign supporters and and you know intellectual sort of support to help broaden your cause. At the end of the day, I think it's all inside baseball. Uh, at the end of the day, they all only have one vote, um, and you know. So I think that we care about it, and the pundit class cares about it a lot more than it matters uh, in any real kind of way. The only thing that does matter is to the extent that it, it inhibits its ability to raise from some of the traditional sources of Republican funds. But look, I mean, I think, you know, and a lot of these people are my friends and have been supportive of, you know, folks who I've worked for before I work with. Um, the, the bottom line is that in many ways, you know, uh, they're part of the professional class of political donors who care about winning and incumbency more than they do about ideology or philosophy. And, um, so, I mean, I think that, you know, I wouldn't, it doesn't to me make a great statement about where anybody is on the issues. It says more about who they think is going to win. Um, and so, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll chatter about it a lot, but it doesn't mean a lot to voters. And we're talking with Dave, Dave Catalfamo here on spin class and Dave almost out of time. We could probably go all day, but, uh, and all night. One last question for you. What do you make as a communications director of Bill de Blasio's stumbles, particularly around the communications area. I mean, he really has just not been uh, uh, about to award him the political knucklehead award for not only boycotting the St. Patrick's Day parade, but apparently botching the pre-St. Patrick's Day parade breakfast, which, uh, you know, this is just an opportunity to look mayoral, and he blew it. Well, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, odder than that, Michael, that he's actually – you know, is that he's he's actually giving governor to Governor Cuomo, who also didn't go to the St. Patrick's Day parade, right? And yet we're all sitting here talking about the mayor not going. Um, the chief elected officer of the state of New York didn't go to the St. Patrick's Day parade. Look, I I think that what's kind of disappointing from my point of view is that uh, clearly De Blasio uh, looked right out of the gate after the primary. Uh, within a week, there was a poll out that gave him a huge commanding lead. Uh, that was pretty much insurmountable for Joe Loda. And yet, notwithstanding that entire time frame to be able to prepare to run government in the city of New York, it doesn't appear like they did a whole hell of a lot. And that, to me, is the more damning and disappointing part of it, is that they didn't hit the ground running. Whether it's communications or governance in general, it seemed to have been a very slow uh, transition. And I think that they need to do some work to catch up. And you know, we talk about communications a lot, but if you don't have the people on the inside who are actually running government and making things happen, it's very difficult to do the communications for that as well, right? So, yes, yeah, cer- um, certainly very surprising from a seasoned political guy like Bill de Blasio to just not be prepared to kind of take over on day one. And uh, certainly that was an issue that was brought up during the primary. It didn't seem to get any traction, but uh, people had discussed it, and uh, I guess the voters get what they deserve sometimes. So Dave Catalfamo, Park Strategies, Communications Guru, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class, and we'll have you again soon. All righty. Be well. Yeah, you you too. Another episode in the books. This is Spin Class here on the Nachum Siegel Network, sponsored by Beckerman Public Relations, BeckermanPR.com. Thanks for joining us. Speak to you next week. (laughs) 